You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, we are certainly not pulling any punches this morning as we are exalting our King and all that He means to us because His crucifixion and His resurrection has made the ultimate difference in our lives. And in keeping with this morning, I'd like to do something a little different and invite you to help me with the sermon introduction. You can take that piece of paper that we used earlier for the corporate prayer about the crucifixion and resurrection and turn it over, and you're going to find there uh, a kind of poem. S.M. Lockridge was a prominent black pastor in San Diego, And in the mid-1900s, he became somewhat known for his preaching, his energy, his style, and his content, which so exalted Christ and was so memorable. And you may have heard of him before, or if you've been on YouTube for any time, sometimes you'll come across some of his poems or some of his sermon excerpts, which are immortalized on the internet. And this is one, which is called Sunday's Coming. And what I'd like for us to do this morning together as we celebrate this wonderful Sunday is for us to read together. Now, there's no way, if you know anything about S.M. Lockridge, that we are going to match his voice or his energy, but it is going to require us to give our heart to it. And so what we want to do is read through this out loud together, meditating upon the words and capturing the incredible truths of what Jesus has done for us as we think about Good Friday, and now Easter. We'll begin at the very top of that sheet on the left-hand column, reading together aloud like this. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know. That Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying, but they don't know that Sunday's a coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns, but they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirits burdened. But you see, it's only Friday, Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the world's winning, people are sinning, and evil's grinning. It's Friday, the soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross, and then they raise him up next to criminals It's Friday, but let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king, and the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved, but they don't know it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just a laughing. 
It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday is coming. Well, friends, I want to remind you that it is Sunday. And this Sunday among the rest is in one way just like the rest. But in another way, it is an opportunity for us to reflect anew upon just what Jesus Christ has done for us in the gospel. You know, in the account of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, Friday, Good Friday, which we celebrated with so much energy and heart and voice together just a a couple of days ago, that Good Friday is framed for us as a day of suffering, of hardship and death. And Sunday, just as we have read, is framed for us as the day of comfort, of redemption, and of new life into the incredible hopelessness and misery of sin, we are reminded this morning that Christ came to save us, that Christ came to help us, that it's true. Jesus faced it all. Jesus paid it all for us. And that is the ultimate hope for us as Christians. But... There is something missing. Because even on this Sunday morning, dressed in our pastels, enjoying the beautiful sun outside, making memories, taking pictures, enjoying food together, we know, you know, and I know that all is not well. We have been encountering in the book of Revelation even predictions about future troubles coming upon the world, in addition to all of the troubles that we feel right now. Many of you, if not all of you, have walked through these doors into this sanctuary with troubles on your shoulders, on your minds, worries and fears and hardships and temptations, losses and crosses and all the rest, because we know that all is not well. Not yet. If Friday stands for a day of suffering and death, and Sunday stands for the day of Christ's redemption, then I think even as we see this morning that the message of this part of the book of Revelation could be quite the opposite of what S.M. Lockridge has said to us, or rather an extension of his words, that it's Sunday, but Friday's coming. Why is this so important? I think that this is important Because our hope on this Sunday morning in particular, and every Sunday morning and every morning from here on, is not that Jesus did all for us only, but that he will also walk with us through all for us. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ, which we know is the gospel that we're trying so desperately in our church to make paramount is a beautiful two-sided silver dollar. On the one side is the already of our redemption, that Jesus Christ has paid the price for us on the cross. He has risen from the dead, which we celebrate this morning, and because of his grace toward us, he's gathered us into his covenant family according to his covenant love, and he will keep us forevermore. But that gospel message is not one-sided. There's not only an already 
there is a not yet. That not yet is the future final redemption. And it is one that we know from our own experience and that we know from the word of God is a redemption that passes through a hard and cold and fallen world. And so, as we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, rather than dropping back as sometimes we do and punting to a traditional Easter text, I think we have a unique opportunity in God's providence to bring our Easter redemption into the not yet of Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to that text this morning, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I want us to see briefly in the time that we have three truths that will help us to do just that, to bring our Easter redemption into the not yet of what is coming in the future and the ultimate redemption that we long for. The first truth is simply this. We're going to see in this text this morning that God gives grace for gospel living. God gives grace for gospel living. Let me ask you to consider a question. What is the good life. I've heard about the good life so many times in my life. It seems that at every major turn, graduation, a change of season, someone is talking about the good life. Pointing off into the future that the good life is coming, the good life is this, the good life is that. There are so many versions and promises. Perhaps in our country, we're most familiar with the good life being equated to something called the American dream. If you really want to be happy in this life, you, you should be married. You should have two and a half kids, a nice job, an obedient dog, a comfortable retirement. That is the good life. Well, even if you're experiencing that life now, you know what we all know. We are not living our best life now. That is obvious. But even so, no matter what life we're living, we know from the Word of God that this life has enormous meaning to all of us. So let me ask you again, what is the good life? I think we have yet another glimpse into the real good life, according to the word of God in this text, as we begin reading in verse 9, and we see John talking about his vision where he saw Jesus, the lamb, breaking another seal, revealing another portion of the coming redemptive plan of God in the world. You remember that we have been breaking seals Sunday after Sunday, and we've been seeing all kinds of alarming things coming out of the scroll of God's perfect plan for the future. We've seen four horsemen which have come along with different colored horses reminding us of of different difficult things that are going to happen around the world where the patterns of suffering and, and, and sin in the world that we have been experiencing since the fall will be intensified. And now we come to the fifth seal. And when it's broken, John says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. I believe that this is the good life. In a world full of options, full of versions, full of empty promises, we have laid out on almost every page of Scripture the good life. 
And the good life is encapsulated in what these believers lived and died for. Do you notice why they died? Why does John see them under the altar showing their life's worship and the acceptance of that by God because of what and who they were living for? What was the good life for them? For what good life did they live? Notice, he says they had been killed because of the word of God. That means because of the proclamation of the word of God. Because the good news of the gospel had so taken grip in their hearts and lives that everything they were about, their life's work was to proclaim Christ to the joy of all people around the world, to the satisfaction of their own souls, to the freedom and forgiveness that is found only in Him. This is why they gave their lives. This is why they lived. This is their good life. You see it even go beyond that. And he says that they were killed because of the word of God. But notice what else? Because of the testimony which they had maintained. What does that tell you? It tells you that for these people, these Christians who are, who are being recognized as faithful, it wasn't just a set of arguments that they believed. It wasn't just a, a kind of message that they were going around scattering with no real meaning to their lives, but rather, what are they sharing? They're not sharing someone else's story. They're sharing a story that had become theirs. But it was their testimony. And even in the face of incredible hardship and persecution and trial and trouble and temptation beneath the world, the flesh, and the devil, they maintained their testimony. They maintained their commitment and their story of what Jesus Christ had done for them, and that for them was paramount. That was the good life. Think of what this says about these martyred Christians. Their highest good was God's gospel and his resurrection power. That's why we love the message of Easter. That's why we so cling and so need every reminder we can have of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it has become our lifeblood. It has become our very life. You may remember in 1 Corinthians 15, where we read about Paul who had declared to the Corinthians that which was of first or paramount importance that was the gospel. A little later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. But friends, here's the good news. The good news this morning on this Easter Sunday is that Christ has been raised. What does that mean? That means that our faith is not in vain. It's true and powerful and life-changing and worth living for with all of our might. And because Christ has been raised... It also means that our preaching, the proclamation of our lives, is not in vain. Neither was theirs. So what did they do? They spent their lives proclaiming with joy the truth of the resurrection. And they did it against the grain of the fallen world. That's why that word maintained is so important. They maintained their testimony. It was not easy. This is the very reason that we are so delighted at this time of year to take the special offering for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering 
that we would see churches planted, that we would see missionaries go out, that we would see the gospel spread because it's this resurrection power that God has given to them and has given to us which bestows on us grace to live the gospel life in this world. And that is good news, the very best of all. You know what we really need is we need every day to be Resurrection Sunday. I look at my own life, I look at the the routine that I tend to fall into, and while there are so many good Christian things that I tend to do, I lose that. I lose the resurrection. How many days out of a month do you think that you you sit and think upon the resurrection, or you, you, you inject resurrection power into your daily life as your hope and your comfort? How often is that happening? It needs to happen more. We need this to become our hope every day, the hope of the resurrection. But there is an even greater picture of Christ's resurrection power in these believers that we're reading about this morning. It's not only that they lived for the Word of God. It's not only that they lived lives that maintained their testimony against all kinds of of pressure and trouble. It's also that they died. It was Sunday for them. But Friday came, and they died in the glory of Christ's grace. Listen again to verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Another question. For what are you willing to die I think a better way to put that question, though, is what do you think you're willing to die for? Because you and I really don't know. We wouldn't know until that moment. We all probably feel that in thinking about the question that we'd like to say that we would die for Christ, that we would die for His Word, that we would die for our testimony, but we really don't know. And perhaps many of us are afraid that if we were to face that, that we might not. And so we hope that there would be grace in that moment. How does someone live and die this way? I don't know other than grace. There must be some special infusing of grace in that time that makes someone like me so weak and fearful, bold enough to stand up against such opposition, even at the threat of my own life, of losing my family and my home and everything that we've worked for in our church. It can only be because of grace. But nevertheless, we can try to imagine or offer our hope? What would you like to die for? What would be the most important thing in your life that you could die for? I think this is a hard question. The question of, would I die for Christ? Do I love Him that way? Would I die for His Word? Would I die maintaining my testimony? It's a difficult question, I think, perhaps, because we've been desensitized to this idea. We've sort of been desensitized to it because we even use that language in flippant ways. Someone comes to a potluck and brings a Texas sheet cake and someone says, oh, you'll love it. 
it's to die for. You walk through a store looking at a, a dress for Easter morning or a wedding reception or a prom and you say those words, look at that, oh, it's to die for. Wait till you see her. We use that kind of language and it somehow drains from us the idea that we actually might die for something. That we might actually die for someone. I recently read a short story that was titled Chivalry. And when I read it, I thought about myself. I found myself sort of reflected in the story in this way. Chivalry is a story about Mrs. Whitaker, a childless widow who's living her mundane life in the UK. She goes to a secondhand shop and she finds the Holy Grail. Now, mind you, this is a fictional story, but she finds in the secondhand store the Holy Grail from which Jesus and his disciples drank the Last Supper. And she buys this treasure along with a couple of books that she liked for 50 pence but she doesn't want it for any reason other than it will look nice on her mantle next to her husband's picture. There the Holy Grail sits on her mantle for some time until up rides Sir Galahad, an ancient knight, magically arriving on a horse from ancient past. And he rides up to her door wanting to gain that chalice. He knew what kind of treasure it was, the value within it, that he would have it. And so he visits her three times, making invaluable offers to trade. He offers her a magic sword, Balmung. He offers her the fruit that promises eternal life, this dripping apple to take a bite and you could live forever. He offers her the philosopher's stone, which could take ordinary metals and turn them into gold and silver. He offers her the egg of a phoenix. But in all of those offers, she turns him away, and all that she wants is for him to help her in the garden and tidy up the house. In the end, he does finally get his way because she does make a trade. And of all of those things, all she wants is the stone and the egg because they will look nice on her mantle next to the picture of her husband. When I read that story, I saw myself in Mrs. Whitaker. She has no appreciation for what is ultimately valuable. Her priorities are out of whack. And that's why I thought, that's me. Because I, like her, often lack eyes to see the value of what I've actually been offered in Christ. You see, this is why I'm not sure that I would die for him Because I know that my eyes are dim and I don't always recognize what is being offered to me. I think it's only by God's grace that we could become willing in real life. Not only in hoping, not only to live, but to die for the resurrected Christ. It's only by some work of God's grace that we could treasure Christ and the gospel by this miracle of a change of heart such that we would, we would love him and treasure him enough. Let's not be so arrogant to presume that this is what real Christianity is all about, being willing to die for Christ. 
Sometimes I have judged other Christians on the basis of whether I thought they would be willing to die for him, thinking that I most certainly would, but then I have forgotten even what Peter said. He said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And we know what happened to Peter. But we hope, and we don't know if we would, but for grace. But we should be confident that God is honored by such faithfulness. We should pursue the kind of treasuring hearts for Christ that would put us in a place that we could be like these believers. Look at how they gave their lives. Look at how God honored them. It says that they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, O Lord. These are the words of of sovereign submission. They're submitting to this king who controls and rules all. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging your blood on those who live on the earth? Notice what happens in verse 11. For these believers who had lived their all for him and died their all for him, it says a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told that they would, were to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed even as they had been was completed also. He put a white robe on them. This is a picture of ultimate favor, of true and lasting righteousness. This is what God thinks about dying for him. When he sees someone who is living for him, when he sees someone who is dying for him, he sees his son. He sees Christ. He sees a work being done in their lives that only he could do. And therefore, he shows them wrapped in his righteousness because of what only he could do. How can we gain confidence of what we might do if we were put to the test? If on this Resurrection Sunday we were put to the test, our faith was tested, tested even with fire or death, how can we gain confidence? We have to take an inventory of our lives. I have so often at moments of my life said these words, Oh God, don't let me die. I've often said that when something was going on in our family, something exciting, a birth of a new child or some new opportunity or, or things at the church are going really well or somehow I found some new skill and I'm dabbling in it. Oh God, please don't let me die. This is so good. This life, this moment, it's so good. Don't let me die. But in that moment, what am I treasuring? What am I treasuring most? There's nothing wrong with enjoying his good gifts. We're even commanded to do that in in the scriptures. but, But still, I want to know and love Christ more. I need grace so that I might be willing to say, oh God, let me die. Let me die for you. You have died for me. Finally, I want you to see that Easter is not only about a finished work, but it is about a coming kingdom. In this text, looking forward, it is Friday. There is suffering, there is hardship. Those who have gone before have died. They have died because of the word of God and because they maintain their testimony in this fallen world. And yet, another Sunday is coming. Today, it's Sunday, and Friday is coming. But when that Friday comes, 
the Friday of future suffering, the one that we've gained some seriousness about, some sobriety over as we've looked at the book of Revelation, in particular chapter 6, we have to remember that a final Sunday is coming. And it's the final Sunday that the God who gives grace for gospel living and the God who gives grace for, for gospel dying is the God who will gather his people into a gospel kingdom. Notice what these saints cried out from the altar in verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? They were longing for the eternal Sunday to come again, to come finally. This is something that we so desperately need in our church. It's something that we so desperately need in our homes is that this Easter Sunday is magnificent. It is wonderful. It is glorious, but it's not the end. It's not the ultimate Sunday. There is another Sunday coming. You notice in verse 11 that he robed them in righteous comforts. And what does he tell them to do? He tells them to rest because he is at work. He says, rest a little while longer until I gather together all of your brothers and sisters into my arms, into my kingdom, and then the end will come. We have such a hard time waiting, even for little things. I remember all down through the years, our family would go to an Easter egg hunts like at Jeffrey Mansion, and they would stand around the ribbon waiting, 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 baskets in hand, pointing out for themselves where they're going to go, making their strategy. How can I get that golden egg? I see it. I don't think anybody else sees it. I'm going to go get that one. Waiting, waiting, leaning up underneath the ribbon, waiting for the horn to go off. We just can't wait. How much more are we then to be waiting, waiting, waiting for the trumpet to blow and Christ to return to usher in our eternal Sunday? That's the hope, that's the comfort that these believers are given in Revelation chapter 6. That's the hope, that's the comfort that we're given on this resurrection Sunday. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you also will be. Here is the good news in this text, in our lives, in this moment, in every moment of human history since the fall, here is the good news of Good Friday and Easter. It is that God is notorious for turning something bad into something good. Most of us, if not all of us, need that reminder. There are bad things happening in your life. There are bad things happening in your world, in your home, you're rattled. You're rattled by the things going on in the world. You're rattled by things going on between people that you love. You're rattled by your family. You're rattled by your work. You're rattled by school. We all are. But we need this reminder. God is notorious. He loves to turn something bad into something good. 
And therefore, as we consider the present and future suffering of this world, our greatest comfort on this Easter morning is that he will turn these days and those days into our ultimate good for him in heaven. And that's why we have hope, and that's why we have joy now and forevermore. We want that to be our meditation this morning as we, as we even leave in just a brief time. We want this to stick with us. We want to hold on to it, carry it into our lives, and to remember what the resurrection has provided for us at every turn. Hope and comfort and joy. Why? Because it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. We're going to celebrate the coming Sunday right now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And actually, we have the the real elements of real bread and real juice, not the little cups, though you're welcome to use those. There are some there if you would rather open it yourself. But I'm going to pray for us, and in just a moment, we're going to come up and distribute those elements to the congregation. This is an opportunity for us on this Easter morning to examine our own hearts and what Christ has done for us, to think about how he is ministering to us right now, and I hope that you'll do that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope that you will refrain from taking of the Lord's Supper and use this as a time to seek God and ask him to give you everything that you need so that you can believe in him. And if you are a Christian, church member or not, I welcome you to take the bread and the fruit of the vine with us together in celebration of what Jesus has done for us, living, died, and risen from the dead for us and coming again. Our Father, we give you thanks this morning because you are our King You are holy and true. You are the sovereign Lord. You are the king of grace and mercy. You are the king of good news. You are notorious in this world for taking things bad and making them into things good. Most of all, you have taken the death of your son and turned it for our good, for our redemption, for our hope, for our help. Oh God, we pray as we take the Lord's Supper today that our hearts would rejoice, that we would be comforted because of what you've done for us and God, we pray that because of what you have done in Christ, that we would be emboldened to love you, emboldened to serve you, and that we would keep our eyes and our hearts upon you. We also pray that you would direct our attention forward to the ultimate Sunday coming when Jesus will return again and put all of his enemies under his feet, and he will rescue and and take care of us for all eternity. Even in these moments, he is our hope, he is our joy, and we pray by your spirit you will continue to strengthen us in every way, and may our taking of the Lord's Supper help us to do just that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.